Today on Main Calling, cultural appropriation. Where's the line? Is there one? We've come a long way in our awareness of racist stereotypes. The vast majority of people no longer use certain derogatory terms, for example, or wouldn't dream of going to a party in blackface. But people still do things that feel deeply insulting or culturally insensitive to others, sometimes adopting their concept as one's own. They use a name or phrase, dress a certain way, or co-opt a piece of music. That's called cultural appropriation. I'm Jennifer Rooks. Today on Main Calling, we delve into this idea. When is adopting an aspect of someone else's culture a compliment, and when is it hurtful? Is it only relevant in some instances? Is the line changing? Cultural appropriation in Maine and beyond. Main Calling is just ahead. Maine Calling on Demand is made possible in part by Maine Farmland Trust, working with farmers to grow the future of farming and food in Maine. Learn how you can get involved at mainefarmlandtrust.org learn. And by Maine Seacoast Mission, strengthening Maine's coastal and island communities through education, health, and support. Learn more at seacoastmission.org. I'm Jennifer Rooks, and this is Maine Calling. What exactly does the term cultural appropriation refer to, and what examples of it have we seen in Maine? Joining me today to offer their perspectives, Molly and Bryant, who is tribal ambassador for the Penobscot Nation, and she is an advocate on the issue of derogatory mascots and imagery, and Loring Danforth, cultural anthropologist who chairs a Dana professor of anthropology emeritus at Bates College. Excuse me, I said that wrong. The Charles A. Dana, Professor of Anthropology Emeritus at Bates College. Uh, Loring, why do academics always have complicated titles? I, th- th- that's another show. <laughs> Ignore them. <laughs> we invite you to join the conversation. Has your community debated the issue of school mascots, or are you feeling as though you're... Um, lost in this world of wondering when you might be doing something that's insensitive to somebody else, send an email, talk at mainpublic.org, post a comment on Facebook or Instagram, or give us a call at 1-800-399-3566. Again, our number, 1-800-399-3566. Thank you both again so much for joining us. And Ambassador Bryant, Molly, and I'm going to start with you. We've heard about cultural appropriation in Maine, mostly in um, associated with the use of indigenous imagery, for example, for school mascots, logos, and other names. So why don't you start by sort of explaining to us what one might mean when they talk about cultural appropriation? This We're talking about something different than just flat out using a derogatory term, correct? Sure, thanks, Jennifer. It's great to be here with you all. Um, So when we talk about cultural appropriation, I I think there's a level of taking something that doesn't belong to you. And in my experience with with Indian mascots and and different imagery and stereotypical matters, you're taking it and you're misusing it. 
So my kind of awakening to a lot of this was when I was a teenager and I was seeing sports teams uh, in different high schools around the state using things like warriors and Indians uh, and such and, and taking things from my culture, the, the feathers and the war paint and the dress and the dances and, and misusing them in a context of high school sports. So that was where I got my first sort of visceral emotional almost reaction of this doesn't feel right because I've grown up to know these things as sacred and meaningful in this context of my cultural identity. And here they are being taken and, and sort of owned by someone else and misused. So I think that's where the, the, the difference really lies and, and sort of the, the crux of this appropriate uh, appropriation conversation. And I'm sure you've been thinking about this uh, this week as Super Bowl weekend and the winners are the Kansas City Chiefs. For sure. So we've seen a lot of teams change their names. Of course, the Washington team had had an all out slur for, for their mascot for quite some time. The Chiefs have have really clung to this um mascot and and under the guise of well a chief could be anything you have a chief of police chief of your fire department uh you know chief executive officer but the imagery they use with the arrow and the drumming and, and a lot of their practices really ties that into indigenous culture and you you've seen protests this weekend from from different indigenous folks and ally groups so this is certainly still a very problematic mascot and, and we really wish they would get rid of it Professor Danforth, Lauren, give us a sense of the range of ways that this cultural appropriation occurs. Maybe some examples? Okay, well, I, I want to thank you for inviting me, and it's a pleasure to be here with Malian. Um, there are a whole range of examples of cultural appropriation, and the most important thing from my perspective, is the power relationships between the two groups, the one that's being borrowed from and the one that's doing the borrowed. And the, the difference between cultural appropriation and some innocent example of cultural exchange or, or borrowing has to do with those power relationships. So if the element being borrowed from a culture or identity is from a minority group or a group that suffered past discrimination, and the people doing the borrowing are from the mainstream, from the more uh, dominant group in society, then it's more likely to be cultural appropriation. And if it's done without respect, if it's uh, being trivialized. <clears throat> so in addition to the sports mascots, the um, arena in which I encounter um, appropriation most obviously in my career um, teaching at Bates has been with Halloween costumes. And every year I would send out a message to students saying, think about your Halloween costumes. And I made it clear I wasn't the uh, police officer, but um, when you take somebody's identity or culture and transform them into a costume, right? I mean, I wear clothes, I don't wear a costume. And if you take my clothes and dress up with them at Halloween, then you're turning my clothes into a costume and putting it together with witches and devils in a way that's, that's trivializing and disrespectful. I think clothes are a really interesting example, um, Professor. And one of the reasons is I'm remembering a case several years ago where a girl, a teenage girl, wore a dress with a Chinese collar for prom because she thought it was beautiful and was criticized for it. And I'm wondering, um, I'm sure you're nodding, you, you remember that case. What are your thoughts on that example? 
what that that brings up a really um, important point that anthropologists interested in symbols and meaning and interpretation think a lot about. And whenever you're trying to understand um, the use of a symbol or a word, you need to think about two things. First is the intention of the person using the word. So in this case, the little girl who thinks uh, aspect of Chinese clothes is um, beautiful and her intention is to honor it or to admire it. Um, that's part of the meaning. But the other part of the meaning is the reception of it by the people that see the symbol or hear the word. And often my intention doesn't match the reception by people who see it. And the mascot issue, which Halloween costumes are classic cases with mascots over and over again. Um, the white alumni of university say, oh, we're honoring them or our, our mascot is to honor Native Americans. And Native American spokespeople often say, nope, you're offending me, you're not honoring me. One spokesperson said, what part of ouch don't you understand? This hurts. And so um, in that case, um, I've, I know cases where parents have said to their children, gee, Johnny, it's not a good idea to dress up as that, and the kid's disappointed. And the, the examples, um, innocent mistakes versus really intentional degrading behavior, that's, that's important in how you respond to them. Molly, and it's so interesting to me to be having this conversation right now, because just a couple of weeks ago, I was in Washington, D.C., and I went to the Museum of the American Indian, and there's a very large display there showing all the different ways throughout contemporary um, American history that Native symbols have been co-opted and used. Um, and, and when you see the wall with all of this advertising, it's really quite overwhelming how often... Um, what's interesting to me is the way that it's presented at the museum. Um, I don't believe the the exhibit even uses the phrase cultural appropriation, and it doesn't pass judgment. It is pointing out how how prevalent and how how much. And I think the one of the messages is is how much being an American is tied in with a lot of the values, or at least the way that others perceive of the values of American Indians. And I'm just wondering if, if you've seen this exhibit or if you if you've, um, have any thoughts about the way that advertising has used these symbols throughout, um, at least throughout the 20th century, but even before. Yeah, so a few things here. Uh, I, I saw the opening of the museum in 2005. And the day before I went to that museum, I had gone to the Holocaust Museum. Um, and that museum moved me, the Holocaust Museum. I, it took, I was what, 20 years old then. Uh, it took a very long time to get through it. I was thinking, I was feeling, I was right there. So then I went to the Native American Museum and uh, and I didn't really feel moved. I, I thought it was a nice display of some art. Uh, and, and it just felt like it wasn't telling the whole story. So I remember thinking it's okay to talk about genocide and, and these, you know, atrocious things in our past as long as it happens somewhere else. And and the Smithsonian Museum for for our people didn't really want to go there back then. So I haven't been there since, but I've heard they're doing things a lot better. And and thinking about um, this question you posed here about uh, imagery and, and advertising and all this sort of thing, there is this real compulsion, I think, in American society to romanticize uh, Indigenous people and to candy coat our story. And, and a great example that ties in with the Halloween costumes is Walt Disney Pocahontas movie. 
Um, so when you think about Halloween costumes that depict Native American people, indigenous women, they're often over-sexualized. They're, you know, scanty, scantily clad women on the um, advertisements for them and everything. And then you see them out and about and you think, I'm an indigenous woman. Uh, that's not what I wear. Uh, so, so there's there's that disconnection. There's also this trend that this over-sexualization makes us invisible. The, the real indigenous women are made invisible by images like Walt Disney's Pocahontas that depicts this over-sexualized um, woman who has some great qualities about her, but it isn't telling the real story of Pocahontas because at the time when this movie was supposed to have happened, she was a 14-year-old girl. She wasn't in romantic relationships with these explorers and colonists. Uh, she was kidnapped from her home against her will, and she died alone uh, in Europe of disease at a very young age. So it's not this beautiful love story of coming together of two worlds and, and, and understanding all that stuff is great. But by painting this as something it's not, it makes our real people and our real stories very invisible. And a lot of times that's what happens in, in advertising. And you also have this element of taking away our humanity. So things like the Land O'Lakes Butter Lady and, and things like that, we're stuck in that picture. We're stuck in that one image and we're not allowed to be a full people. Loring. Um, I agree with Molly and I think advertising is, is really a powerful example of cultural appropriation and uh, particularly destructive. Um, you can go as far back as cigar store Indians, which were used to advertise selling tobacco, which was the um, counterpart to the gold, which the English colonists didn't find. And then you have Jeep Cherokees, which, you know, advertise wildness and back to nature and um, things like that. And then you have the fiasco of urban outfitters selling Navajo hipster panties and being sued by the Navajo nation um, for violation of trademark and things. Um, and I'd, I also, um, you know, Malian mentioned invisibility and all these practices have the impact of erasing um, Native Americans from the present and erasing contemporary Native Americans who are lawyers and doctors and all kinds of things. But um, what these mascot imagery, what this mascot imagery does is is confine people, confine Native peoples to the past and imply that they're still um, trapped in the 17 and 1800s. And with the Kansas City Chief examples, which is a great one, um, they're arrowhead. I mean, what's an arrowhead? An arrowhead is a tool or it's a weapon. And it suggests that people using arrowheads are primitive and violent and enemy. And if they have arrowheads, then we better get some weapons to fight back. So there's all that destructiveness. And in case anybody's worried about the chiefs being um, not um, Indian chiefs, but some other kind of chief, all you have to do is look at the mascot that the Kansas City chiefs used in the 60s, which was a um, native man with a feathered headdress holding a football and a tomahawk naked from the waist up wearing a loincloth um, in red that said Kansas City. So um, it, there's no doubt about it that it's a um, offensive Native American um, reference. And I was struck by the fact that at the end zone during the Super Bowl, it was the big arrowhead and the big chiefs and right behind it was a little black and white message that said end racism. Wait a minute. If you want to end racism, then stop calling the stadium Arrowhead Stadium, stop using Chiefs, stop using Arrowheads, and um, eliminate mascots entirely. 
Yeah, and and Molly and um, it, it is interesting that Lando Lakes has since dropped the um, the imagery that you about three years ago uh, dropped that imagery. Uh, calling in now, David Camlin, who's producer and director of the film "We Are the Warriors." It's a documentary about how one Maine community, Wells, addressed controversy over their school mascot. Thanks so much for calling in, David. The film airs tonight on Maine Public Television. The reason we're doing this program today is to raise a awareness of that. Uh, David, tell us about the film. Hi, uh, thanks for having me today. Um, yeah, so uh, We Are the Warriors is a film that follows the 2018 uh, process of the Wells community and more specifically the Mascot Advisory Committee that was formed um, to really uh, go through the truth and reconciliation process to address their use of the name Warriors and Association with um, a native or indigenous identity um, and for many years uh, since 19, 1946 mid 40s uh, the yearbook was named the abenaki and um, myself and my co-director megan grumbling were both graduates of wells high school grew up there uh, graduated in the mid 90s and uh, so we were really had good access to the community um, and were able to sort of follow the process of the committee and the eventual recommendation to the school board that the native imagery and sort of uh, typical Indian head logo was retired. Mm. Uh, and that was ultimately a vote by the school board uh, at the end of the 2017 to 2018 school year to retire that imagery. But they did keep the name Warriors, um, which uh, is a, a less problematic nickname when associated with uh, you know, indigenous imagery and identity. Uh, David, it's really interesting to me that you and Megan both went to Wells High School, and I'm wondering if you've had a personal sort of journey. I'm, I'm guessing as a teenager, you didn't think twice about uh, the name of the yearbook or the name of your team. No, not at all. Uh, you know, it, it was never really challenged or addressed. Uh, and, you know, both of us were in marching band and, uh, you know, at every home football game. And, you know, unfortunately participated in a lot of the behavior. Um, you know, one thing that comes to mind immediately, and it may have, may have already been mentioned, is the tomahawk chop, which was uh, happened at this past Super Bowl. And having that, you know, being the most viewed TV event in history, uh, really, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm, it's, it's a pretty, it, it's a pretty uh, high level of exposure for uh, such a sort of offensive tradition. And, you know, it's the, it's the type of thing when you're growing up in that community or in a community that, that uh, holds these mascots in high regard, um, you know, not having it be challenged, uh, you do celebrate it and you do look forward to getting, you know, for myself, I, I really was looking, looked forward to getting the band jacket that had um, this sort of like clip art uh, cartoon image of a, of, an, of a Native American on it. Um, and even getting out of high school, uh, you know, I, I don't have kids. I don't live in Wells, so I haven't really been connected to the school district over the past couple of generations. But, um, yeah, it, it was it was pretty surprising, I think, when the whole story broke and we started to, um, you know, cover things as they unfolded. Um, really, the level uh, uh, of, at which the, the image was used within the school um, it was it was really pretty prominent. It was featured pretty much everywhere on chairs. Um, you know, doors had the logo on it. It was it was really kind of everywhere you looked. And um, I think 
now with the community, the, the school system having officially retired the mascot, um, there's still people who are celebrating it. And, um, you know, I think it's probably one of these things that will take as much time to sort of um, get over it as as it was celebrated. So it's probably going to be a couple of generations before I think the community has um, sort of fully reconciled the use. Well, David, thank you so much for calling in. David Camlin directed the documentary called We Are the Warriors. It airs on Maine Public Television tonight at 9 and again Saturday at 2. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Jennifer Rooks, and this is Maine Calling. We are talking today about the term cultural appropriation and what it means broadly and how it has an impact here in Maine. With me, Loring Danforth, who is Emeritus Professor of Anthropology at Bates College, and Molly and Bryant, Penobscot Nation Ambassador, who has been active in raising awareness of instances of cultural appropriation in Maine. Share your comments and questions. Are you wondering how to avoid offending someone from another culture? Or do you object to the idea of talking about cultural appropriation, you can send an email to talk at mainpublic.org, comment on Facebook or Instagram, or give us a call at 1-800-399-3566, 1-800-399-3566. Molly Ann, I want to circle back to you because my understanding is that Maine is the first and so far only state to ban the use of Native American imagery for mascots and um, in other similar ways. Governor Mills signed that law um, in 2019. Am I right? Are we still the only state? And can you talk about the significance of that ban? I believe there have been um, more states that have at least gotten pretty far in the process. I, I think Colorado might have got it over the finish line, um, but but there there might be more. Um, but it, it's a super significant thing um, to be first and possibly only <laughs> to, to have the, the whole thing done. And uh, I, I remember around this time, we had sort of the last holdout school, Skowhegan, working through their process with their Indian mascot. And that was, of course, a very public, at times messy and unpleasant battle uh, with a lot of folks in town that really wanted to keep that Indian mascot in their high school. So it was interesting working on the legislation with lawmakers, you know, while Skowhegan was, was going through sort of the end of their process. And they did end up removing their Indian mascot a couple months before the bill is signed into law. So so Maine officially had no more Indian mascots in their high schools. And, and then, you know, we kind of sealed the deal with that legislation so that we couldn't go backwards on all that great progress we had made. But I, I think the impact is really great for Wabanaki people in the state. I, I know that my start in a lot of this you know, happened when I was in high school and I got activated around a lot of these things. I have three children, two of them are teenagers, they're 14 and 17. So they're both in high school. My youngest is one, she'll be two this year. So I have a broad range of, of kids to think about. So I think about how happy it makes me that my older two won't see these mascots around the state. Uh, they might deal with the Halloween costumes. They might have other battles to fight, but they won't see their peers and other schools engaging in this sort of behavior like I did. And then I think about my youngest daughter who has quite a, a longer journey to get to high school and, and thinking about how much more progress we'll make by the time she's there. You know, maybe her classmates will be so much more informed if we can get, you know, some really meaningful Labanaki studies curriculum uh, in the hands of, of all teachers around the state. Um, so it's all part of, of the whole 
picture, I, I think, of increasing diversity and respect and inclusion and all that, that great stuff. And, and I think that this has been a really important piece of it, having this law in the books in Maine. Go ahead, Professor Danforth. As a teacher, I've um, been really interested and committed to making people aware of the issue and how to change people's minds. And Malian's experiences at Skowhegan, uh, I think, are really important. I've had two uh, really powerful personal experiences with the issue. One was when I was an undergraduate in college um, in the 70s, Amherst College, they their mascot was Lord Jeff, who gave infected smallpox blankets to the Indians. And the plates we used to eat on were um, decorated with little purple images of Lord Jeffrey Amherst on a, on a horse shooting a gun at Native Americans uh, riding away in front of him. And one night in the dining hall, two Navajo students just picked up plates and started smashing them on the floor, just smash, smash, crash. And it was electrifying. And the, the room got silent. And I don't, I probably didn't understand much of what was happening then, but I certainly did later. And then in the 90s, um, I was using a film in my teaching about the mascot issue at University of Illinois. The title is In Whose Honor. And that was when Five main high schools got contacted by a Native American activist and threatened with lawsuits. So I sent letters to the five uh, principals and the Scarborough principal came uh, to talk to me and I went to their cultural awareness day and had a really powerful experience sitting with a Mi'kmaq man and his daughter um, who had grown up uh, removed from their identity. They'd gone by nicknames of Pocahontas and Tonto and stuff, but then to quote him, he got in touch with his people, learned more about his identity, and uh, realized those native nicknames were offensive and was opposed to the Scarborough um, mascot. And that afternoon, there was a big uh, auditorium full of students who were angry at those of us, me and several Penobscot and Passamaquoddy uh, spokespeople who were telling them their mascot was offensive. One student said, um, what symbol can we use to honor you? And a Penobscot woman said, none. Um, and somebody said, how about Sacagawea? Why isn't Sacagawea offensive? And I suggested that that was a famous individual who was on a coin with Washington and Jefferson and not an anonymous offensive racist stereotype. So there are huge differences. So, so how to make people aware of them, how to convince people um, that this is a problem is really challenging because the arguments that come back are so strong. And, and people, I believe, sincerely think that they are honoring and celebrating. They're not, they're not being insincere about that. I have an email here from Stephen what is and how far do we go with cultural appropriation? In all seriousness, if someone of European root should not wear dreadlocks, does this mean someone of African root should not straighten their hair? If a non-Asian should not wear Chinese, Thai, etc. dress, then the people of Asia, Native American, and African root should not wear European, European clothing such as suit and tie. Especially as Americans, we have shared and borrowed food, customs, and styles for many generations. And in my opinion, this has made us stronger as long as it is not in a mocking derogatory way, we have so much more in common than we are different. So I'm gonna go back to you, um, Loring Danforth. I think a lot of people are confused. They say food, music, clothing, we've all been borrowing from each other forever. Right, that's that's um, a wonderful, uh 
question and deserves serious um, consideration. I think the key is our relationships that are involved. And as the uh, person asking the question, ways respect. I mean, um, uh, using Native American religious symbols at a basketball game is not respectful. Using um, feathers, which are sacred symbols in Native American cultures on a Halloween costume is not respectful. Um, certainly borrowing and exchanging, right? Going to a Japanese restaurant, going to a Greek restaurant. Um, those are, I do not think, examples of cultural appropriation. If I were to um, use um, some ethnic food in a disrespectful way, that might be. Molly, what do you think? <laughs> it, it is a great question. And it's one that I get um, a lot of the time. I, I think a lot of folks have great intentions about this stuff. And, and, and I love the honesty in asking the questions. And I think you hit the, the nail on the head with there is a power question here. So, so kind of just taking from a culture that has been colonized by your ancestors, um, that really diminishes that culture. I think supporting and elevating the folks within that group, whether you're patronizing their restaurants and supporting their small businesses, buying beaded jewelry and art and baskets from artists and, and, and craftspeople. I think that's a great way to support and share and borrow without stealing and appropriating. I, sometimes I give the example of if I walked into a room and, and saw you, uh, Jennifer, and said, oh, I really love your shirt. Um, I might go out and buy one like it because I, I, I like your style and, and I'd like to look like that, but I'm not going to take your shirt off of you, put it on and say, hi, I'm Jennifer. Uh, this is my birthday, this is my favorite color, and I like ice cream and, and all this, and, and try to become you. So, so I think that it, it, there's a lot of gray area, but but I like that example of I can appreciate things about you and admire things and, and go about it in a respectful way, perhaps in a reciprocal dialogue with you where we are actually sharing and not taking yeah, and I was going to say that because so many people like to maybe go to the Indian market up up in um, Bar Harbor or travel to the desert southwest and buy jewelry and pottery and baskets. And, and that, in your view, is not cultural appropriation, but rather celebrating. And I was reading yeah, about... Sure. I was reading about the uh, Scarborough issue recently, and apparently there's a mural in the uh, Scarborough gymnasium by a beloved teacher, a mural of a um, Native American head with a headdress, and they kept that up. And there was a blog post saying, now it's time for a powwow. And <laughs> I'm thinking, come on. Um, and that strikes me as an example of a word which is used disrespectfully in contrast to words like canoe and kayak, which come from Native American or Inuit Eskimo languages, which we use and that's borrowing and is totally appropriate. They're not used with disrespect, but the powwow use was clearly offensive as other um, Native American terms um, yeah. are. So and we're all sure learning all the time. Sorry. I want to go now. We've got, we're joined by uh, Katrina Sangster, who's chair of the Indigenous Neighbors Working Group for Maine Summer Camps. Thanks so much for calling in, Katrina. Hi there. Thanks for having me today. I understand that Maine Summer Camps has instituted a process to examine its own practices over cultural appropriation. And I'm wondering what prompted these efforts. What, um, if, if somebody has not gone to a Maine Summer Camp or had their child go to one, what kind of things are traditional that we're taking another look at now? Well, I would go back to the founding of, of camps 80, 90, over 100 years ago, um, you know, 
to get children out into nature. And at the time, there was admiration for indigenous ways of being in coming together in community and in nature. Um, and some camp leaders may have even had some connections with and, and knowledge of indigenous people. However, over time, this admiration and fascination without real knowledge and understanding led to um, oftentimes appropriation of names or symbols or ceremonies or words as has been discussed here, you know, over time. Um, while there wasn't necessarily in harm intended, the impact um, caused harm. And this is something that we've been reflecting on as an industry in recent years. And in part, thanks to people like um, Tribal Ambassador Mally and Dana Bryant um, bringing this to our attention in Maine. Have you gotten a lot of pushback? I mean, Maine summer camps are pretty darn traditional, some of them. You know, it's a process. It's challenging and humbling to have to say, uh, to reflect and look on the practices that you have, the traditions that, as you said, have gone back for many years. And I think the, as I said, the intent was not ever to do harm. um, And it's hard to understand when it feels like it's a, uh, maybe a ceremony that's feels unique to your camp. However, it might have aspects that have been taken from indigenous um, cultures and is no longer being, you know, authentically represented. Um, So yes, it is challenging to, and vulnerable, a vulnerable place to say this, what we've been doing might be wrong and we need to um, look at it. And that's why we've, as an organization, tried to take leadership in creating an assessment tool for camps to go through a process of reflecting on their practices and names and traditions. Well, Katrina, thanks so much for calling in. Katrina Sangster, chair of the Maine Summer Camps Indigenous Neighbors Working Group. We have so many questions and comments coming in. We're going to go to Larry from Milton, New Hampshire. Hi, Larry. Go ahead. Hi, good morning. Um, What information would you like? Um, I will start with uh, Roger Williams, uh, who, when he escaped from Massachusetts, uh, referred to the Indians who befriended him as the ravens, going back to Elijah being uh, being fed uh, in the desert. Interesting way of uh, choosing a new name uh, for a sports team. Um, My question has to do with appropriation. Uh, Shall I take my Brooks Brothers uh, tweed uh, jacket with its academic corduroy patches, uh, throw it out? Uh, Or more importantly, uh, let's take my uh, Gunderson uh, ancestors. Right now, Natalie Portman uh, has taken over Thor's hammer. Is that a cultural appropriation? Professor Danforth, I think he's talking about, um, you know, people using maybe Viking imagery or imagery from, uh, I'm going to guess the Greeks or Romans. Uh, what What is your thinking about that? Again, really interesting examples. Um, in my discussions with students, often people ask about, oh, what about the Notre Dame fighting Irish? Or what about the Boston Celtics? Or what about the Dallas Cowboys? And my response there is, if a group of people decide to choose a symbol from their own past to represent themselves, that is, um, in my opinion, not appropriation because there's no power dynamics. And so if the Irish Catholics 
of Notre Dame want to be the fighting Irish, that's fine. And similarly, if the Haskell Indians of the Haskell Indian Tribal Nation, which is a Native American university, if they choose to be the Indians, as they do, that's, um, to me, not an issue. And one quick um, comment with regard to the summer camps. I applaud the sensitivity with which the summer camps are now dealing with the issue. And some of the most troubled student, students I've ever had teaching have been students who come up to me when we're talking about this issue and say, do you mean when I went to camp so-and-so that Native American imagery was problematic? And I gently say, let's talk about it. Let's think about it. And some of them um, resist. Often they gradually come to see the uh, new perspective on the issue and and they're struggling with it. And that's that's important to acknowledge and to help them along. Larry, thanks so much for your call. We do need to take another quick break. Our phone number 1-800-399-3566. This is Maine Calling. Welcome back. I'm Jennifer Rooks. You're listening to Maine Calling. We're learning about instances of cultural appropriation, how to recognize it and how to think about it. My guest, Molly Ann Bryant, who is Penobscot Nation Ambassador, and Loring Danforth, anthropologist and professor at Bates College. Join our conversation at 1-800-399-3566. Send a brief email to talk at mainepublic.org or post to our Facebook page or to Instagram. Um, let's see, we will go to Kristen, who's calling from Freeport. Hi, Kristen, go ahead. Hi, thank you. Um, I'm calling in um, to kind of tap um, both the guest brains about um, the Indian statue that stands in Freeport, um, right on Route 1. It's been there for several decades, um, you know, long before there were um, kind of standards for signage and, and more of an awareness about um, cultural appropriation. Um, and kind of back to Ambassador Dana's comment, or Bryant, excuse me, about um, like how now that the um, school mascot legislation has passed, she feels that, you know, her children are going to be in a better place, as will all children. But it's kind of counterintuitive that in school, the children are told and and kind of are learning about why this is not, um, you know, kind and considerate and culturally sensitive. But then they get in the car and drive, you know, or the school bus and drive by the statue. Yeah. And Kristen, you know what? You're public. not the only one bringing it up. Uh, Camilla has also sent an email about the um, big wooden uh, statue in Freeport. I was in Skowhegan recently. There's one there, too. Molly and. Yeah, so I'm also the president of the board of directors for the Wabanaki Alliance, which is our uh, nonprofit group that we've pulled together of tribal leaders. And, and our board officially supported an effort to remove the, the Freeport statue. Uh, we don't find it to be culturally accurate of, of any of the Wabanaki tribes. I, I think the old name for it was Chief Passamaquoddy. Um, and the Passamaquoddy members of our board certainly took issue with that. It, it doesn't really reflect their people or their culture. So we we are um, in support of removing it. And, and an interesting thing that happened in the Skowhegan battle over that mascot was we found supporters of the mascot giving the statue in town more human qualities and consideration than they would give to us. 
they would call it their Skowhegan Indian. They would say, let's meet at the Indian. And there was so much reverence uh, and inhumanity given to, to this piece of wood um, instead of the, the indigenous, the Wabanaki people who were coming to them looking to have a dialogue uh, around their mascot. We were a lot of times we were met with sort of immediate disrespect and de dehumanization. So a, a lot of this can feel sort of symbolic and, and surface level, but these symbols and words and everything, it really does matter. And, and I really appreciated Lauren's story about the students breaking the plates, the, the, internalization of this harm by indigenous people and kids and elders, it is a real thing and it does matter and it has a huge impact. Kristen, thanks for your um, call. An email here from Dee, and this is this is an interesting question. Dee writes, I am white. For years I've been using a thumbs up emoji that is brown in color. I started using the brown thumbs up in emails and texts as an acknowledgement and support for diversity. I have several relatives with brown and black skin and they've never told me it was offensive. Should I change the white thumbs up emoji and apologize to my brown and black family members? So um, Molly, and here's an example of, is this an example of somebody overthinking things or, or not really? Um, that's the first time I've heard that question. And and I think it's great that emojis offer this range of skin colors. Um, I would probably have to chew on that a little bit more. It, it seems like a nice gesture, gesture to do. And I'm not sure in her everyday life, she probably isn't claiming to be a different race. Um, but, but that's a, a, a modern issue we'll have to think about. <laughs> we'll go to Lee, who's calling from Brunswick. Hi, Lee. Go ahead. Hi there. I really appreciate you all having this conversation today. Um, I want to raise up my, my friend Heather Augustine when um, she, I, I'm lucky enough that she will have these conversations with me as I try to make sense of these challenging issues. And she often reminds me to ask who holds the power and who stands to benefit. And so with, with things like this where um, someone's engaging in representations or rituals that aren't our own, you know, it's a question of who's in control. If the keepers of the knowledge or the people being represented it, represented, are in control and you're intentionally playing a supporting role, I think that's acceptable. Um, and, and also asking who's benefiting. You know, often these groups that are being represented are already disenfranchised group and their culture is being used to benefit others. So it's really important to be asking permission and decentralizing ourselves and acknowledging and elevating the teachers and the origins um, of these of these images and rituals that that are um, being engaged with. Lee, thanks so much for your comment. Um, I'm going to go to an email from Karen. Karen writes, I do find it difficult to talk to other people about this. And even though I've been aware of the concept for some time, many people think others are re overreacting. I don't understand the issues always myself, but I think that if I use the issue of kindness and respect to others, I can understand it better and I can talk to others more easily and perhaps more effectively. And And I wanna explore this a little bit, um, Molly, and because I think that what Karen's talking about is intention. I think sometimes people feel defensive because they think I'm a good person, I'm not doing anything, you know, hateful and, and I, I just grew up this way and I think I'm being respectful and, and um, so what is your advice for people who are going through this journey of trying to figure it out? 
Yeah, great question. And I do want to give um, a nod to Maine summer camps. I actually spoke to the, the large convention of American summer camps uh, last week at, at their convention about cultural appropriation and about how we sort of move forward together. And I have, you know, over 20 years in uh, on this stuff, and I have a lot of lessons learned. And I always haven't been respectful. And I always haven't gone about things the right way. And, and I think one of the things I've learned is shared humanity is how you open hearts and minds. Nobody wants to be told they're wrong. <laughs> as tempting as it is sometimes, people are most likely doing things that they feel are right and that they feel um, it is their right to do. So dismantling a lot of this, and we talk about power and power is a huge deal. And these structures uh, that create this power are really tough to dismantle. So how do we chip away at that? We relate to people's shared humanity. Human beings want to feel loved and safe and valued and validated. We want our physical needs met. We need shelter and housing and food and water. So if we can talk about things about how my humanity relates to yours, that makes a lot of these conversations a whole lot easier. And a lot of times that takes a lot of patience on the part of the people that don't have that power. And, and that's a learned um, skill that that can take a lot of time. Loring. Yeah, I agree with Malian completely about the need for respecting humanity um, of other people. I have two examples, one on myself. Um, a long time ago, I used the expression illegal alien, and a member of the base faculty said to me politely, you know, we don't use that word anymore. We refer to undocumented migrants. And I said, thank you for telling me that. And another occasion the other way around, I saw a man um, with a Cleveland Indians hat and I saw him and I said, you know, do you know that some people think the mascot Chief Wahoo is offensive? And we had a nice discussion about it. And he said, um, I mean, I was afraid I'd jumped all over him. And he said, thank you for raising the issue so politely. And um, so I think, you know, the goal of educating people, get the, a caller in said, don't overthink things. Yes, overthink things. Think about things as much as you can. And um, it's it, it's if you're thinking about it and asking questions, then you can get information. And there's not always a right or wrong. The brown thumb emoji is an intriguing one, and I wouldn't know how to answer that, but it's certainly good that the person's thinking about it. And I just had another example on that level. And um, shoot, it's it's sort of vanished. Uh, hold on just a second. Oh, here we go. An email from Wendy. A small group from our church wanted to plant a three sisters beans, corn and squash garden on church grounds. We thought the children would be a part of this. Then we questioned, were we misappropriating? Any comments or advice? And Molly and I was in a community garden where this trio is celebrated. Uh, so tell us. What are your thoughts? So, so my gut reaction is is that that is a beautiful, innovative thing that Wabanaki people did. And, and I think it's helpful um, to acknowledge the connection to the Wabanaki. But, but I think that that's one of those things that can be shared uh, and used. And, and it's great that the folks doing it um, had that thought. And, and I think Lauren's totally right. Think about it. Think a lot. <laughs> I, I think you, you can't overthink this stuff either. Um, and, you know, when it comes to, to gardening and, and all this, you know, sort of beautiful, inventive thoughts that our ancestors had, I think if you're going to be taking part in that, take it a step further and learn about the roots, learn about 
that land and who stewarded that land for generations learn about modern causes, you know, you you can share and take it a step further um, and, and expand and, and educate. I have an email here from Maria. My question is for suggestions for talking with others who might not understand or believe in, and that's quotes there, believe in the issue of cultural appropriation. My partner grew up in the Midwest and is a big Chiefs fan, as are our kids. I've been trying to explain to the kids what why the chants fans do that they've been taught are not okay. I would love your panelists' thoughts on how to approach those conversations, especially since my partner, their dad, is not necessarily on the same page given his generation and cultural upbringing. So we're really tight on time. Um, Lauren, you've already talked about maybe just being polite and being warm. Um, Molly, do you want to add to that? I, I think, um, you know, talking about this is tough. So, so I think bringing it back to something we can relate to is important. I, I think if you put it in the context of other races or groups, sometimes people get it, you know, because you picture if they were using slurs about different races or doing um, sort of Catholic church ceremonies on the feel different. So, so I think reframing it in, you know, something that folks might be more familiar with um, might add to the shock value maybe and, and help them come along. Uh, Professor Danforth, it looks like you wanted to jump in and add something else. I had a poster on my door for a long time until it disappeared, which uh, was sports banners. And it said the Pittsburgh Negroes, the San Francisco Chinamen, the Baltimore Jews, the Cleveland Indians. Maybe now you know how it feels. So if if you use examples from other cultures, you'd be horrified at it using rosary beads or um, yarmulkes or something in a in a disrespectful sports event. And so to to try to convey to people what the imagery means to Native Americans and also uh, something we haven't talked about the psychological um, intergenerational trauma and the PTSD that um, has been documented by American Psychological Association and other people to um, indicate the damage that it does to um, Native Americans and all people um, in terms of respecting cultural diversity. Um, and I think we... one, one last point on that. Um, when you take those parts that look pretty or look good, you're not respecting the whole experience. We do have severe trauma. We do have high rates of poverty and addiction and, and certain things that we're dealing with. So when you're stealing from part of our experience, but not honoring all of it, that's a problem for us too. I'm going to try to squeeze in one more call, Elise and Unity. And Elise, we're super tight on time. So if you could be quick. Okay. Um, so the people that have brought up like um, the gentleman that brought up his Brooks Brothers professorial suit, I mean, jacket and other people that have brought up Western clothing and, and um, foods and things like that. Um, being native um, is not a choice. Be becoming a professor is a choice. And I think that that's one thing that people forget about. Um, you know, it, I, I'm Abenaki. My, I'm from Odenak. And, you know, I, I was born native and it's not it's not something that I couldn't go to college to become. Um, it's it's who I am. Um, and, and it's not something that I can choose to be, you know. Yeah. Well, Elise, thank you for sharing your perspective. And um, I'm glad we got you in and we are out of time. So thank you so much for our to our guests, Molly and Bryant, Tribal Ambassador for the Penobscot Nation and Loring Danforth, Professor 
of Anthropology Emeritus at Bates College. Today's sound engineer was Sam Tracy. Main Calling is produced by Jonathan Smith and Cindy Hahn. If you want to sign up for Main Calling's free weekly newsletter, go to maincalling.org. Tomorrow on the program, diversity, equity, and inclusion in Maine, and what's behind the backlash to DEI. I'm Jennifer Rooks, and you have been listening to Maine Calling on Maine Public Radio.